Welcome to the Brian Thomas Crop Podcast. My name is Brian Thomas Crop, and I believe that stories have a tremendous power for good, so I write them and I enjoy sharing them with you. And if you are new to the podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad uh, that you are here. Uh, how this show rolls is in just a moment. Uh, you'll hear a chapter from a story that I've written. In this case, it is from uh, the first novel in a series that I'm still working on. Uh, this book is called Showdown in the Yukon, and uh, we've been in it for, oh, wow, this is our 33rd chapter. So you can swing back to, I believe, episode 17, where we start the book, if you'd like to catch all of it. Uh, you can also uh, go to uh, Amazon.com and buy one for yourself. So, and you can just get ahead and that'll be fine. Uh, but after we finish uh, with the chapter, then there is some behind the scenes sort of uh, director's commentary on the chapter or how to write a book or, uh, you know, childhood memories that the chapter brings up or any number of those kinds of things. And uh, yeah, so that is what is going on to catch you up with where we are in Showdown in the Yukon, sort of a um, previously on Showdown in the Yukon. We've got this quartet of adventurers. There is Monterey Jack Danvers, who is sort of the hero of the story. We have uh, Max Sutherland, who has hired Monterey to help him uh, relocate a gold claim that has been stolen from Gladys Finch and her daughter Lucy and um, the four of them have been traveling from California all the way up to the Yukon Territory in Canada uh, trying to wrestle a gold claim away from a man named Cornelius Brown and um, now they have uh, confronted him. They're at his property which used to be the Finch's property and they are hoping that if they can locate the piece of paper, the, the gold claim piece of paper and take it to a judge, then they will have a rightful claim to the property, boost Cornelius Brown out of things and they will have it free and clear. Um, obviously, Mr. Brown is not gonna go without a fight. And so uh, thus conflict is born in the story. Uh, prior to this, there's been all kinds of adventure to get to this point. I'm not gonna tell you all of that kind of stuff. You can go back to all the other episodes and catch up on those. Uh, but in this episode, uh, I think we left off last week with Monterey spying a, a man through a keyhole uh, who's just kind of sitting in a room. And uh, we think that that's Cornelius Brown, but we're not sure. But uh, in this chapter, uh, we will find out and uh, see what happens. Um, stick around. Uh, we will get to chapter 33 in Shodan in the Yukon right after we hear from this week's sponsors. And just before we get into this chapter of Shodan in the Yukon, I want to let you know that its sequel, which is called Shell Game, is now available for pre-order at Amazon.com. I don't know why Amazon does this, but the only thing you can pre-order is the Kindle version of the book. It will also come out in paperback and hardcover in February, so keep a lookout for that. But if you would like to pre-order your Kindle copy, of Shell Game, which carries this story uh, on into the future. Uh, you can do that over at uh, amazon.com. I would appreciate it if you did. And now here is this week's chapter. Chapter 33. 
Through that little hole, he saw the profile of a man lit only by the pale moonlight. At least Monterey assumed it was a man. From his outward appearance, the man looked to be more like a bear than a man. His body was almost circular, wrapped in a coat of many different pelts. His head, shielded by a grand and gnarly beard, possessed a cascade of long, greasy strands from his crown to his shoulders. Monterey at once knew two things. The first was this must be the same man he had seen ranting and carrying on after the explosions that morning, driving him and his companions underground. The second was that this animal-looking man must be none other than the illustrious Cornelius Brown. Mr. Brown was sitting still as a statue staring at the room's door. Why? Was he sleeping? Was he expecting someone to arrive or something to happen? Monterey's first thought was to creep back out of the house before he was found out and think of some other way in time to search the house. He would have to deal with Mrs. Finch's severe reprimand. Mrs. Finch. He was glad he was here instead of her. There Mr. Brown sat, unaware of his observer. It would be simple enough to end his life. Monterey was grateful he didn't have a weapon on his person in case such a notion ever seemed reasonable to him. He was well aware that if he were successful, he would end up in jail or worse. If he were unsuccessful in the attempt, he would likely die at Mr. Brown's hands. Monterey closed his eyes and shoved the thoughts away. Monterey shifted his weight back on his heels so he could start the return trip to the pantry. At that very moment, Mr. Brown spoke. I know you're there, he said, his voice a rough grumble. It's the foolishness of thieves, he said. If you can steal from a place once, you think you can steal from there every time. You always forget that the second time, someone knows to expect you. Mr. Brown's face had turned, and though Monterey was safely behind the servant's door, Mr. Brown seemed to look right at him. For the slightest of moments, Monterey forgot he was looking through a keyhole. Mr. Brown might, if Monterey was careful, think no one was there and was only speaking to himself. You think you're clever, don't you? Mr. Brown said. But you've made a grave mistake. Not only do I know who you are, or more specifically, who you were for. But I know what you want from me. Monterey realized he didn't so much hear Mr. Brown through the keyhole, but more through another of the furnace vents placed in the corridor. Monterey got an idea. He bent down and put his face right against the vent cover and placed his hands around his mouth and said, I don't want anything from you, sir. I only wanted to see what finery a man of your talent surrounds himself with. Mr. Brown chuckled to himself. <laughs> Flattery, he said. You think you can fool me with flattery? I do not, Monterey replied. I think you much too clever for that. The stories I've heard of you tell me you would never fall for a meaningless compliment of your vanity. Yes, well, Mr. Brown shifted in his chair. Your theft of the portrait the other day would suggest other motives now, wouldn't it? Monterey did not know what to say next that would not get him or his friends in trouble. Mr. Brown continued. I'll admit, I never thought she would come back to these parts. I did underestimate her resolve, but let me tell you, my little spirit in the dark, her greed will be her undoing. If I can encourage you in anything, it would be to remove yourself from that horrible woman's company as soon as you can. For the greed of Gladys Finch is boundless, and it's infectious, and if you are not careful, it will also infect you. I believe she is less concerned about the riches of the land, said Monterey. Then what? I would say the portrait speaks for itself. And what do you hear it say? Mr. Brown mocked. I believe it says vengeance is required for her husband's death, 
and it says that you are accountable. Mr. Brown rocked his shaggy bear of a head back and laughed and laughed. There are those laughs that are mirthful and make you smile even if you did not hear the joke. There are other laughs, though, full of spite and anger. The hearing of them makes you want to run for your life. It was the second kind of laugh Mr. Brown shot into the still night. Of course, now that I'm here, Monterey continued, I see only the rarest of men could have harvested so much out of the earth. I'm sure Mr. Finch could never have done what you have done. Did you ever meet the man? No, sir, I didn't, said Monterey. Let me tell you what sort of man he was. For one, he was lucky. I admit he has that on me, as I was more than happy to exploit that to my advantage, as any reasonable businessman would. However, he was, like his wife, endlessly greedy. He had plans to grab a few chunks of gold and become Lord High and Mighty of the region. Isn't that exactly what you have done? It's what those who wish they had as much foresight as me would like to think. I employ people. I marshal the region's resources. It was I who dammed up the river to provide electricity for the telegraph line. It was I who paid for every stick of lumber that built that resentful and forgetful Penny Canyon. And what do you people do? Complain. Bite the hand that feeds you. Try to destroy the only good thing you and your kind are likely to experience. It was at this point Mr. Brown got up from his chair and wandered out of Monterey's sight. On and on, he continued. You've listened to her lies about me, and now you've stolen from me. Even if you were able to bring me down and were charitable enough to give her this land she claims is hers by rights, even if you could do that, you would just as fast turn on her as you have me. Me! After all the good I've brought to this area. He wandered back to where Monterey could see him, and Monterey perceived he held in one hand a shotgun, the barrel unbroken. Monterey was not sure what Mr. Brown's plans were, but the thought entered his mind that he should leave as quickly as possible. As he slipped back down the stairs and through the house, Monterey could still hear Mr. Brown's bellowing voice coming out of all the air vents. No matter what difficulty came my way, I have prevailed. I prevailed against the Finches, and I prevailed against the people of Penny Canyon. I have more power now than I did then, and you dare to dream that you will remove me from my land against my will? The first blast of the shotgun rang out through the house. Monterey froze, his breath rapid. The sound of plaster and wood rained down on the ceiling above him. Monterey was almost sure the wall he had hidden behind was what felt the first blows of Mr. Brown's wrath. You tell your townsfolk, Mr. Brown bellowed, that I'm coming for them. You want justice? I'll give you justice. My justice at the end of my barrel. The second blast exploded, and Monterey started running again. He could hear the heavy footfalls of Mr. Brown descending the stairs. Monterey was just able to close the closet door and shimmy down the ladder before he heard the closet door reopen and slam shut. A few seconds later, the front door slammed shut and the house fell silent. Monterey crept back into the closet. He could hear some muffled voices and the sounds of horses. Then he crept the door open and was able to see out of one of the windows in the green room. He saw Mr. Brown ride off into the night with many other horsemen. Fearing Mr. Brown was about to terrorize Penny Canyon, he tossed open the door and ran to the telegraph machine. In a few seconds, he sent out a warning to Penny Canyon. He had no time to see if the message was received. As soon as he had dashed it off, he ran back down to the secret cellar, never knowing if anyone in Penny Canyon would hear the message or if they would be able to stop Mr. Brown. Did you find the claim? 
Mrs. Finch asked when Monterey reappeared in the cellar. No, he said, but I think I might have started a war. Well, now we've had a confrontation with Cornelius Brown. So there's um, a thing that is a part of a good villain. And arguably, that is uh, what we're having here is this confrontation between our hero and our villain, between Monterey Jack Danvers and Cornelius Brown. And it ties to uh, two things that I've learned uh being a part of uh, churches and walking with with Jesus. Um, there's a verse in the Bible uh, in Proverbs 18, 17 that says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And there's uh, sort of a kind of... Uh, philosophy statement, I guess, from uh, a pastor friend of mine who says that uh, everyone does what makes sense to them, uh, meaning even crazy people do in that moment what is making sense to them. Now, you may not understand it, and I may not understand what the actions are, but for some reason, it makes sense to them. The way uh, Sean Coyne from uh, Story Grid, which I uh, that is a uh, editing writing tool that helped me finish this uh, book. What he would say is you need to have a, a speech in praise of the villain, and that can come from someone else. And we've had a few of those over the course of the story, but also the the villain kind of needs to make their case and in a way to say, this is why I'm justified in doing what I'm doing. And in this story, what we've heard this whole time is what a villain Cornelius Brown is, and he ripped off the Finches' family, and he stole their house, and he stole the gold flame, the gold uh, claim, and he's horrible, horrible, horrible. And then this is his opportunity to say, "Now hold on, just a second. There's another side to all of this, and there's a reason why my actions make sense." And uh, it doesn't mean that he's right, but it does mean that he thinks he's right. And so it was kind of fun to write that. And for someone that in my heart knows, well, this guy's the villain of the story. How can I then write um, not just the, I'm a horrible person and I, I'm just corrupt on the inside, but what are the causes that would drive him to do the things that he did? So, you know, in his mind, um, he's provided a level of improvement to the area. Now, I think as we've described the area, it's desolate and sad. And uh, the fact that he's dammed up the river has caused a great, a great amount of drought in the area. So it's not really an improvement, but he sees it as an improvement. And um, he nails a character flaw in Mrs. Finch that uh, will get exploited uh, for the rest of the story. And that is she is greedy and uh, one of the things that is driving her is um the fact that she is out money she's out the uh she's out her husband and there's a love and a, a familial thing there that um she is missing for certain but there's also a monetary um you know how do you take care of the family in the 1800s without a husband kind of thing that she's dealing with now she's scrappy and she's resourceful and obviously she's been able to do okay raising a daughter and all that kind of thing but 
you, you find out that thing that your husband was into that you got ripped off from is pouring out a ton of money uh, and gold, you're going to get a little jealous and a little greedy. And so that does, he's not wrong. Uh, I think that's an important thing to include uh, for a villain if you're writing a good story is that the thing that he's doing has a grain of truth to it. I would assume I haven't watched Star Wars episodes one through three since they came out in the theater because mostly I don't feel like they aid in the in the story of Star Wars at all. They're kind of interesting ish, but they don't really aid in the, the larger story of what's going on in Star Wars. But I think uh, the the drive towards uh, moving from a republic to an empire or the rise of the Sith Lord or whatever Palpatine was doing at the time, I, I would imagine at a level, there is the part that he's wanting more power and he's wanting um, uh, control and all the things that are are dark and evil. But he's probably also thinking, and this will improve things if we can move to a more uh, collective government that will improve lives. Now, he's bad at it and it doesn't improve lives. But, you know, at some level, I think he thinks what I'm doing is going to be helpful. So that's what Cornelius Brown in this speech now that he has to do to say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's important. Um, Now, again, we're going to get into is is Cornelius Brown the book's villain or not? But clearly in this scene, he is the villain. And so uh, he needed to have a clear case stated for why he's doing what he's doing. And if you are writing a story, um, you would want to have that as part of the the thing that you're writing too, is that the villain, if we told the story from the villain's perspective, we would want to know, he, we would want to know that he thinks that he's right. And we'd try to, you know, kind of build the case uh, on his side of things. Um, but there you go. There's your there's your writing lesson for the day. I hope that you've enjoyed this chapter and are enjoying the podcast. Uh, if you are, uh, please uh, swing over to wherever you're listening to this and leave uh, ratings and reviews. Uh, if you haven't uh, picked up a copy of Showdown in the Yukon or you haven't gifted it to somebody, you can swing over to Amazon.com and you can take care of all of that there. If you would like to be on the inside of knowing when new releases are coming out and how you can help get those things out there, um, whether that is through just like voting on cover designs or getting early copies of books that you can read and help me uh, make them better. Um, You can do that over at briantomascrop.com. Join my reader group and every month you'll get a newsletter um, that kind of has that kind of information in it. Also, I will send you a whole packet of uh, other stories that I've uh, written that you can have all for yourself and all those things. So I'm glad that you are here uh, listening to this and I'd love to hear back from you. Until next time, I hope you have a great week.